Now, on to the sermon. Liberate is the series that we're in. We are working our way through the middle two chapters of the book of Galatians. And just a quick reminder, the big picture here is that in the churches in Galatia, the big issue is there's a group of Christians who are insisting, these are Jewish Christians, who are insisting that in order to be a real Christian, to be legit, uh, then you have to keep all the law of Moses. And so it's creating a big disruption in the church, and Paul is writing to address that problem. Now, uh, if you've not been here along the way, don't worry about this, but I've got a little pop quiz for those of you who have been around. We're going to sort of figure out where we're at. Don't worry, we're not going to turn anything in. There'll be no scores, no dunce caps, none of that. But uh, just a little pop quiz. Let's figure out where we are. On the side screen here, you're going to see an equation. We haven't looked at it quite this way yet, so it's a little bit of deductive reasoning here. An equation, Those we need to fill in the blanks with those three words, and, and those three words, by the way, are in alphabetical order. There's no hints built in. But we're going to fill it two different ways. There's the group who insists you have to keep the law in order to be a good and in good standing type of Christian. And then there's the message that Paul is bringing, which, of course, is different than that. How would the group that insists you have to keep the law fill in the blanks? I'll give you a second to answer in your own mind. Some of you are like, if you would just shut up, I could fill in the blanks in my mind, Aaron. Okay, you got it? Now, now let's do the same thing. Except, how would Paul answer this question? How does Christianity answer this question? Hint, it's in a different order now. What order would they put it in? I feel ridiculous. So just give you a few seconds. Get it in your mind. Get your answers there. Okay, now let's go to the correct answers. The first one is how the Judaizers, the group causing trouble in the church, would do this math. They would say it begins... With obedience, first and foremost, we start with obedience to the law. We add to that faith in Jesus. Now, these people weren't saying that you don't need faith in Jesus. What they're saying is you don't just need faith in Jesus. So you start with obedience, you add faith in Jesus, and from that you will be saved. And Paul says you got the right pieces, but you got them in the wrong order. You begin with faith, period. Faith in Jesus, faith alone, faith in Jesus. We pledge our allegiance to the King of glory. And with that, simultaneously, comes salvation. Faith plus salvation. Put your faith in Jesus, you will be saved. You pledge allegiance to Him, then you are a child of God. So faith plus allegiance, and then out of that comes obedience. Not because you're afraid, but because you're grateful. Hopefully you remember that piece of the puzzle. I hope... You guys got that. If you guys um, answered those correctly, then that means you're, you're in good shape moving forward. Um, if not, don't worry. We're going to keep hitting the same themes in different ways as we work our way through. Um, okay, so um, let's look to the text now. We're going to look at uh, verses 8 to 20. Uh, weirdly, though, I'm going to read them out of order. Uh, we're going to read verses 12 to 20 first, and that, they sort of illustrate how upset Paul is. Uh, we'll move through them pretty quickly. And then verses 8 through 11, the four verses preceding what we're about to read, um, they explain why he's so upset. And they need a bit more explanation, so we're going to finish with them. So Galatians 4, 12 to 16, go like this. Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to live as I do in freedom from these things. For I've become like you Gentiles 
free from those laws. Then he gets personal. You did not mistreat me when I first preached to you. Surely you remember that I was sick when I first brought you the good news. But even though my condition tempted you to reject me, you did not despise me or turn me away. No, you took me in, cared for me as though I were an angel from God or even Christ Jesus himself. That's really good care. Verse 15, where is that joyful and grateful spirit you felt then? I'm sure you would have taken out your own eyes and given them to me if that had been possible. Have I now become your enemy because I'm telling you the truth? That's pretty raw if you read into it at all. Uh, Paul is showing his emotions here and unapologetically he is appealing to their emotions as well. Uh, We get interesting backgrounds here. Uh, When he came to Galatia, it was not a planned stop. He wasn't going to go to Galatia. He was going to go through Galatia on his way to somewhere else, but apparently some sort of an illness kept him from making that trip, and he basically crashed in Galatia. Uh, We don't know exactly what was wrong. Um, When he writes to the Corinthians, Paul said something about having a thorn in his flesh. Um, Not sure what that is either. Maybe some sort of an ongoing illness or a disability. That could be the case. There's some other textual hints that Paul had uh, very poor vision, and we see uh, a reference to that here in this text, where the very weird sentence where he says, if, if it were possible, you would have given me your own eyes. And so that's weird. So maybe that's a hint that it was a problem with his eyes. That was an issue. Um, maybe that's the case. Um, some people have guessed malaria because of that. Um, who knows? We don't know exactly what the reasons are. But this part is clear. Paul was in bad shape. And he was bad enough shape. He looked bad enough that plenty of people would look at him and assume, especially in this context, that his condition was a curse from the gods and they should stay clear of that cursed man. But Paul says, hey, you guys, remember you, you didn't do that. You didn't reject me then. Uh, you cared for me. And he's going, now we have all this trust and all this relationship. He ended up staying in Galatia for a year or two, by the way. You have all of this careful relationship that we have built and this transformation we've experienced with Christ, and you're rejecting me now? Like, you didn't reject me then, but you're going to do it now? Like, really? And, and Paul's laying it on pretty thick right here, but he has a right to do that. They're family. That's a big part of the point that he's making. So back to the text now, verse 17. Those false teachers are so eager to win your favor, but their intentions are not good. They're trying to shut you off from me so that you will pay attention only to them. If someone is eager to do good things for you, that's all right. But let them do it all the time, not just when I'm with you. In verse 19, he begins with saying, Oh, my dear children. That's his intense language, and I just want you to know, uh, there are certain people who are just like super lovey-dovey, huggy types. Um, I'm one of those people, actually. If you get close, I might just wrap my arms around you and say sweet things. I'm sort of that type of a guy. Paul's not that type of guy. Paul's like a brilliant, towering theological genius, okay? He's not real. Not that you can't be smart and, hug, and huggy, but it's just that's not his style. He's like, let's, let's hang out in the classroom is sort of his style. But he was shaped by Jesus and therefore emotionally available, and there were times that his emotions would, would overflow him, and this is one of those times. Um, the Apostle John and the writings of John, he's the one who talked a lot about family and would say, oh, my dear little children, or oh, my precious ones, um, uh, that sounded like Lord of the Rings, or uh, never mind. I haven't even seen the movies. It's where my mind went. I'm spazzy right now. Um, but Paul would write typically about the kingdom of God 
John would write typically about the family of God, and Peter would write typically about the church of God. So I said all that to say, this is quite an exceptional emotional flourish for Paul in his very studious way to go, oh, my dear children. And then he adds this, I feel as if I'm going through labor pains for you again. That is a bold statement. That is a bold statement for a lady to make. It's a really bold statement for a dude to make. I, a few weeks ago, this is a true story, a few weeks ago, I was complaining about how difficult it was to write a particular sermon, like it just wouldn't work. And I was like, man, it's like giving birth. And this very kind woman looked at me and said, you can't say that. You're not allowed to say I was like, good point. You're right. I cannot say that. I take it back. It's not like giving birth. But that's what he said. He says, it's, it's like giving birth. And he says, and they will continue, these, this pain will continue until Christ is fully developed in your lives. Let me just take a little aside here for that. Um, what we see here is that Paul's idea of doing the Great Commission, we've made this distinction before about the Great Commission many times. It's very, very important. Jesus didn't say go and make converts. He said go and make disciples. It's a very important difference. And it's clear that's not what Paul's trying to do is go make converts. Like for him, the end game was not to walk an aisle or fill out a card. For him, the end game is for someone to be fully formed and developed into the way of Jesus. And for him, evangelism wasn't saying, can I invite you to church, or would you like to have life with Jesus? And they say yes, or they say no. It was this process that for him, an an unplanned stop that lasted for a year or two, where he began to care about these people and walk with these people and carry their burdens, and then long for them to have life with Jesus, and then invest in them as he went, so that in finding Jesus for him, it felt like giving birth. And he says, I'm going to continue in that until... Christ is fully developed in you. And he's using this language unapologetically of being a spiritual mother to them. All the way through, he describes a gestation period, the act of giving birth, and and now continuing on because they've not yet been weaned because they're so easily thrown off. Now, I know that people get uncomfortable when the Bible talks about gender stuff. and, And if you're a dude, you might be like, seriously, why is this weird for Paul to talk about being a spiritual mother? Um... And if that's where you're at, I just want to be like, it's fine. Just, just chill. <laughs> like, don't get all bent out of shape about that. Uh, you can flip over to 1 John chapter 2, and it talks about how we should all be spiritual fathers. Okay? Um, these things have a way of balancing out. Sometimes a, a woman might read the text and say, why does it say we'll all be like sons of God? Well, what about being daughters of God? And then I was like, well, flip over to Revelation, where it says we're all the bride of Christ. Okay? So there's a give and a take to this, and the point is not to get super caught up in these sort of gender-bending questions. Um, That really is missing the forest for the trees. Uh, These are spiritual realities trying to fit in our limited physical categories, and it makes sense to talk about a spiritual mother in this context because it was painful to see them come to life, and now he's still struggling because they've not yet been weaned and moved forward. So if you're all been out of shape about that, just relax. I'm not even talking about gender this week. I'm talking about gender next week. We'll see you then. <laughs> I don't plan to offend a ton of people, like not any more than usual, but we'll see. That's next week. Uh, verse 20. I wish I were with you right now. This is very, like, this is a parent talking. I wish I were with you right now so I could change my tone. Uh, but at this distance, I don't know how else to help you. He's just so, so frustrated. 
Uh, this reminds me of a, a time my mom, I, I, went, I got home from school, I was a punk kid, I came home and was wrecking the house like I did every day when I came home, and mom was upset, and she was like, you know what, this is my job, like, I take care of our kids, I take care of our family, I take care of our home, and then you, it makes me mad when you come home and just undo all of it. How would you feel if when you finished your homework, I would go into your backpack and just tear it all up? And I remember in that moment being like, I have lost. Mom just completely painted me in the corner, and I got dunked on, and I should just say, yes, ma'am, I'm sorry. I don't remember what I said. I probably said something dumb, not yes, ma'am, I'm sorry, because she was like absolutely spot on, nailed me to the wall. She was right. And that's how Paul feels. He's like, man, I've done all of this work to make sure you move into life with Jesus. I turn my back for one minute, and now you're letting people come in and undermine the whole thing. So that's how upset he is. That's the emotional appeal. Now let's go backward to verse 8 and look at the four verses preceding the ones that we just read, and we're going to see what he is responding to. As a quick aside, by the way, um, you might notice this. It'll be weird. We're, we're going to switch from reading the NLT to the CSB. Uh, just a real quick thing for like six people in the room who might care. <laughs> um, when you uh, study the Bible, there are different sort of translation methods. Some of them are phrase-by-phrase translations where they take entire phrases from the Greek and then translate it in a chunk. And some of them are word-by-word translations. One word from the Greek, right to English. One word from the Greek, right to English. Phrase-by-phrase translations uh, tend to flow and read much more easily, uh, but be less accurate. Word-by-word translations tend to be sort of chunky and clunky, and uh, pardon me, and tend to be more accurate. Did I say the others were less accurate? I said that wrong. Phrase by phrase tend to be less accurate, easier to read, um, word by word, more accurate, a little bit clunky. So generally speaking, uh, when we read big chunks of text, I'll read from the NLT, which is my favorite phrase by phrase translation. And then when it's time to sort of dig in and and, and look a bit more closely, um, I'll read from the CSB, which is my favorite word for word translation. Again, most of you are like, Aaron, I I don't care. But there's like seven people who are like, oh, all right. So that was for you. Uh, Send me a kind email. Okay, Galatians 4, 8 to 11 in the CSB. But in the past, since you didn't know God, you were enslaved to things that by nature are not God's. But now, since you know God, or rather have become known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elements? That's very strange language. Do you want to be enslaved to them all over again? You're observing special days, months, seasons, and years. I am fearful for you that perhaps my labor for you has been wasted. Okay, weird language here. We've got to break it down. He's talking about slavery to non-gods. What's that about? And then this weak and worthless elements language, also very strange. If you were here for the Varnished series where we went through chapters 1 and 2, I want to remind you of something. There's a a slide that I want to show you. If you were here... Hopefully this looks familiar. This helps us sort of get our our bearings. There are three main groups in uh, the region of Galatia. The largest by far was first century Gentiles. They had a radically different spiritual worldview than first century Jews or first century Christians. Let's remind ourselves of this. First century Gentiles, these were Greeks and Romans. Their perspective was this. There are many gods, a whole pantheon of gods, And they control our destiny. And therefore, we must keep the gods happy by demonstrating our allegiance to them. 
Okay? We've got to be good, keep the gods happy so the good things happen and the bad things don't happen. First century Jews, very different perspective. The Messiah will come and establish the kingdom of the one true God, Yahweh, the one true God. They'll establish his kingdom on the earth, and he will renew all things. And as we talked about a lot lately, he will bless all nations. Therefore, we must, this was their perspective, recognize the Messiah when he comes. And number two, make sure the Messiah recognizes us by keeping his laws. And then the third group in the region was first century Christians. This was both Jews and Gentiles. Their perspective was this, the Messiah has come. His name is Jesus. He established God's kingdom on the earth. This has happened, and he is now renewing all things. Therefore, we must join him in the renewal of all things by walking with Jesus and loving our neighbors. So there's the recap. That's the groups that we're talking about. So Paul's talking in the letter at this point specifically to Gentile Christians. So in that third group, and specifically uh, the Gentiles. And the, the Gentiles in group three, they had come directly from group one, okay? Uh, the ones who believed in many gods, a whole pantheon, and we have to keep them happy so that the good things happen and the bad things don't, okay? They had moved in over from that group into the third group where there is one true God, Jesus is the Messiah, and we're with him now exclusively. Okay, so in this text, what Paul is trying to explain to them is that if they listen to these Judaizers, these people telling them that Jesus alone is not enough, that it's obedience to the law plus faith that leads to salvation, then they're not really in that third group. And he's, we might read this and think, okay, I guess since they're going to keep the law and live more and more like Jews, then I guess what that means is they're moving into the second group in the middle there. But what Paul's saying is, actually, they're not. They're moving all the way back to the first group. All the way back to slavery, to idols. And that is this, this weak and worthless elements thing, which is really confusing. So let's spend a minute, minute with those words. What are these elements? Um, the weak and worthless elements we just read about. Um, if you're ever trying to work your way through a tricky phrase in the Bible, and you look it up in different translations, and every translation says it at least a little bit differently, then you know you got a real thorny one. And that's, that's what this one is. Uh, the Greek phrase here is stoikia to kosmu. And that's not how you actually say it. I don't actually know Greek. But stoikia to kosmu. Stoikia of the cosmos, or stoikia of uh, the universe. And the word stoikia here is really, really tricky. Uh, we actually read that word back last week in verse 3. We had the same word. It's just, again, translated differently, even in the same um, translation. So uh, Galatians 4, verse 3, last week we read this one, and that's the way it was with us before Christ came. We were like children. We were slaves to hear the basic spiritual principles of this world. That's the same word, stoikia, to cosmic. So it's basic spiritual principles of the world, and then a few verses later, it's these weak and worthless elements what is this supposed to be about? Okay, translators really struggle with words like this one because different approaches to translations will lead to different results and different conclusions. For example, um, if you've got a word, you're trying to figure out what it means, 
first stop you want to make is in something called etymology. Etymology is when you look at a word and you pull it apart and you see where the different parts of that word came from and what they meant in their original language, and then you put those parts back together and can usually surmise, okay, well, that's what this word means. And, and, and typically, um, it's a really helpful uh, approach, but um, it can also be uh, misleading. Now, if you do that with this word stoichia, go to the root, take the parts, then what it means is to march in order or to walk in line, all right, to keep in step, okay, that's that sort of thing. But the etymology is actually misleading. That happens sometimes. Uh, I'll give you an example in English that maybe it'll make sense. Uh, the word awful, uh, the word awful, etym going back to its etymology, you take its part, it's awe, as in a sense of wonder and amazement, resplendent, awe, right? <laughs> awe and full, full of awe, awful. If I went to Sharon and said, your beauty is awful, etymologically, like that's a really kind thing to say, but I'm still in a lot of trouble, aren't I? Because awful doesn't mean awful, it means awful. And it, that should be awesome, right? So it gets. So what I'm saying is, when you pick apart the words like that, the etymology can be really confusing. So what that means is you have to use, you have to look at the usage as well. How is it actually used? If somebody was studying our language 3,000 years from now, they would go, awful doesn't mean what you thought it means. That means awesome. Okay. Or it means awful. Ne never mind. Okay. Stoichia. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay, stoichia. <laughs> the etymology of stoichia got hijacked and the word went wonky like with the word awful. And so it doesn't mean in context to march in order or keep in step or walk in line. Uh, it refers instead to what was seen in their sort of limited scientific perspective that what they saw as the fundamental building blocks, the elements from which everything in creation is made. Uh, so earth, wind, fire, and water the four fundamental elements. As an homage, by the way, while writing this sermon, I listened to repeatedly to all the tracks by Earth, Wind, and Fire. Um, and it was a lot of fun. I like funk. And so if you picture me writing this sermon and singing Boogie Wonderland at the same time, that happened. That happened more than once. It was real. And I was in a better mood in the afternoon, so it was a good thing. Uh, specifically, this might help. Uh, Disney just came out with a movie, Pixar, uh, called Elemental. And it is based on um, a, a sort of, these characters in the movie are actually based on earth, wind, fire, and water, seen as the, the, the fundamental elements from which everything is created. I haven't seen the movie yet because like everybody else in the world, I'm waiting for it to come out on Disney+. Plus. But that's the idea, basic elements and principles. And in that first century mindset, the idea was um, there are deities behind each of these things. Okay? So these fundamental elements... Earth, wind, fire, water, also other things like sun, moon, and stars. They made the backbone of the pantheon of gods that the Gentiles had worshipped for centuries. And what Paul's saying is before you were slaves to these non-gods, and now you're just doing it again, only now you're doing it with the law of Moses. I'm going to read these verses again. But in the past, since you didn't know God, you were enslaved to the things that by nature are not gods. That's the whole pantheon thing. But now, since you know God, or rather become known by God, how can you turn back again 
to the weak and worthless elements. Back to earth, wind, fire, water, sun, moon, stars. You're putting your hope in those things. He goes, do you want to be enslaved to them all over again? And he adds this. You are observing special days, months, seasons, years. I know we can run right past that. But that's a reference to the Jewish calendar. He's saying you're doing it all over again. You're keeping all the feasts and all the laws and all the Jewish calendar. You're, doing all, you're jumping through all of these religious hoops. And he says in response to that, I am fearful for you that perhaps my labor for you has been wasted. Let me clarify something just in case you plug in the wrong blank here. Paul is not saying that the law of Moses is just another pagan god and one that may or may not correspond to any of the actual principalities or powers or rulers of this dark world that he talks about in Ephesians 6. Not what he's doing. Some have concluded that it's wrong. What, what he's saying, this is very important, is that the first century pagan worldview that insists you have to appease the gods to keep them happy so that the good things happen and the bad things don't, what he's saying is you're just doing that all over again and functionally, you're just taking the law of Moses, Torah, and you're just shoving it into that pantheon of gods and treating it like it's another one of those gods and then defaulting back to your old sensibilities and the old sensibilities were be good or else. Lightning bolt. That wasn't the Jewish sensibility. Okay? Judaism and the Old Testament speak a great deal about God's love and mercy and kindness and forgiveness and faithfulness. First century Jews did not think that they could earn their salvation. That wasn't a Jewish thing. That was a pagan thing. And these false teachers are are probably saying, hey, look, you're a Christian now. Your foundation is Jewish. You need to go back uh, to the law and dial into your heritage. But what they're actually doing is dialing back into their own broken history. They're dialing back into pagan idolatry. It's all idol worship. They've just added the law of Moses to the list of pagan idols. I hope that makes sense. Now, let's just pause for a second, take a deep breath, and I'm going to level with you. I did my my absolute best. But I think what I just said over the last few minutes was still pretty confusing, okay? So, um, if I lost you in all of that, that's okay. Uh, Don't feel bad. I think it was confusing. I just want to ask you, though, if I lost you, come on back. Um, Moving forward, there will be no more discussion of etymology or pantheons or translation methodology or stuff like that. Let me just bottom line it for you the best way I can. The problem is, and has always been, idolatry. An idol is anything that we put our faith in, anything that we give our allegiance to, other than Yahweh, the one true God. That's the fundamental problem that has plagued mankind from day one. If we look to the Ten Commandments, the first two, were about idolatry. Not just the first one, the first two. And then if you break any of three to ten, it's because you broke one to two. It all boils down, putting our faith, our hope, our confidence in something other than the one true God. And this is one of these really big ideas in Scripture. So again, just sort of 30,000 foot view. We all know, all of us, not a single exception in the room. We all know at our core 
We aren't good enough. We know it. And we're not ultimately good, and what that means is we need help. And none of us, not a single one of us, will ever really be talked out of that paradigm, out of that reality, because it's just too apparent. It's just too obvious. We've got too much evidence. You were there for every horrible thing you have ever done. You're busted, and you know it. I'm busted, and I know it. So, if we are the solution, then we're doomed. And we all know that too. That's why there is no such thing as a non-religious person. It doesn't exist. It's, a whole, it's more explicit in Romans chapter 1. Basically, we all know at our core, there is a God, there is a standard for good and evil, and we are way short of that standard. And that means we aren't okay on our own. And we all know it. So what we all do is we look for solutions. We look for help beyond ourselves. And that is called religion. There are beautiful forms and there are icky forms. But all of it is religion. And Paul's argument here is that we either look to Jesus to save us or we don't. Period. And if we don't, then we're looking to some form of an idol. Or maybe even a whole pantheon of them. Probably you don't put your hope ultimately in elemental, fundamental principles of this earth. Uh, earth, wind, fire, water, sun, moon, stars. Some people worship nature and put their hope there. But probably not. Maybe... You're like most people, and your tendency instead is to put your hope in things like money, or power, or sex, or influence, or popularity, or something else. And the fact is, all of those things were in the first century pantheon of gods as well. Maybe there's a good chance in a room like this one, a bunch of religious folks who came to church on Sunday, we actually put our hope in the law. Now, we wouldn't say, I'm putting my hope in the Torah officially, but that doesn't mean you're free of this idea where you think, if I can be good enough and follow enough of the rules well enough, then God will have to show me mercy. It's all idolatry. It takes as many different forms as there are people in this world. But the bottom line of the whole thing is, if your hope isn't exclusively in Jesus, then it's idolatry. That's, again, the fundamental problem of man, the fundamental source of all of our brokenness. We look to weak and elemental forces instead of looking to Christ alone. Let me be very clear. I can't save you. I can't save you. The church can't save you. The law can't save you. No power on earth above or below can save you. You can't save you. Only Jesus saves, period. And when things get rough, we have a tendency, even if we know better, we go to these default settings, this sort of first century Jewish pantheon of God's mentality, where we go, we just run around thinking, if I can just sort things out, if I can get my emotions straight, if I can get my family straight, if I can get my marriage fixed, if I can get my relationships better, if I can 
if I can change my attitude or my behavior or my career or my finances or whatever, then I'll get back on track and I will be okay. And I'm telling you as clearly as I know how, it's all a lie, it's all idolatry, it's actually paganism. 100% of our actual hope and rescue and salvation is in Jesus, period. That leaves exactly 0.0% combined for everything else you have ever put your faith in. You want to be saved? It is 100% Jesus and 0% everything else. And the truth is our hopes tend to be divided. You might say, yeah, I've put my hope primarily in Jesus. And then there's these other little pantheon of things. I just want you to know, and you know this, but let's just say it. Whatever has your hope to the degree that it has your hope, it owns you. Period. It owns you. That's why Paul calls this being enslaved repeatedly, because that's slavery. Guys, if your ultimate hope is in pleasing me, then I own you. I own you. I don't want to, but there you go, if that's where you've done it. If your hope is in financial security, then money owns you. It just has you. If your hope is in being well-liked by a lot of people, that's a really tough go because you're a slave to opinions of others. Basically means everybody owns you. That's tough. On and on we can go. To the extent that we put our hope in other things, we are owned by those things. That's why Paul says in verse 9, do you really want to be made a slave all over again? All right, so one last idea. It's quick, but it's a big one. Um, if you're thinking, okay, yes, I either haven't put my hope in Jesus or I have and it's been divided along the way, I want to be clear. You cannot just decide to put your faith entirely in Jesus. It doesn't work that way. Now, hear me. Initially, yes. Like at the beginning, for sure, it's a decision. It's a decision. And you have to make the decision or not. You decide to put your faith entirely in Jesus. But it is a process to then remain in that truth and not look back to idols like what's happening in the churches in Galatia. So Paul does this tricky little thing uh, to help his readers see that. I think it's very clever. Uh, The band can come on up. We're about done. Um, Remember, we saw the word storkia. Remember that one? Um, It got hijacked by its usage so that in practice, it didn't get used the way you would expect, like we've done with the word awful. Uh, Stoichia referred to these elemental principles, but really it meant to, to walk in line or to march in an order. Okay, that's the word stoichia. The root word that I'm talking about that means to walk in line or march in order is stoicheo. So anyway, here's what Paul does. This is in the very next chapter, and I you'll never convince me that this wasn't intentional. There's no way this was an accident. In chapter 5, verse 25, he says this, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let's, let us also stoikeo with the Spirit. He's saying, look, we're going to march in line. We are going to left foot, right foot, hour by hour, day by day, walk with Jesus. We are going to keep in step with the Spirit. We're going to stoikeo while others are running around making vain sacrifices to the stoikia. So again, here's what I'm saying. Initially, 
we make a decision. We reject all these other gods. The story key the things that we might put our hope in, whatever that might be, you can make the list better than I can. We choose to reject those things. No idols. Our faith is in Jesus alone. But ultimately, this isn't about making a choice. This is about a relationship. This is about walking with Jesus. This is about falling in love. This is about being so struck by the beauty and the kindness and the forgiveness of our Lord that we walk with Him day in and day out by keeping in step with the Spirit. And as we do that, the stoichia, the, the pantheon of gods, all the things that are vying for our allegiance in the world, all the things that we tend to put our hope in when it doesn't actually belong in them but in Christ alone, those things start looking more and more ridiculous. The stoichia look as silly as the idea of a pantheon of gods in the skies lands on us. That looks as silly to us because we are stoikeo. We are walking with the God of mercy and love and all power and might as well. You don't just decide it. And look, if you're saying, I, I've given my allegiance to Jesus, but there are these other things, then decide now. Get rid of the other things. Decide. But then, you've got a stoikeo. You've got to walk. You've got a left foot, right foot. If you're going to stick to it, it's going to be because you fall in love. It's going to be because of relationship.